0: For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. We're going to be looking at Romans 13, verse 8 through 10. And we're talking about the greatest commandment, which um, Jesus says is to love one another. Now, Paul starts off this little section... In verse 8, by saying, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. I think maybe your initial reaction is when you think about the law and you think about love, that these are two separate things. Law often is phrased in you shall not do something, whereas when it comes to love, it's phrased in the positive. You ought to do these things. Now, I think some people would say that, and actually go further by saying that when you look at the Bible, especially in the New Covenant times, the times in which we're living, that really the most important thing is love, that we can basically discard the Old Testament law because it's not useful anymore. And yet, one of the things that we should be careful about here is that when you look at what Paul says, he doesn't say that Love is the end of the law, but that love is the fulfillment of the law. In other words, love in the biblical sense requires some objective moral direction. And so, when we talk about biblical love, the Old Testament law actually informs us in terms of what it means to love people in a godly way. He says in verse 9, The commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And whatever other commands there may be are summed up in this one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. And he goes on to say in verse 10, love does no harm to a neighbor. So in other words, he's saying here that when you look at adultery, you're essentially doing harm to somebody by either damaging their family or damaging their marriage by committing adultery. When you commit murder, you're robbing somebody of their lives. Or when you covet, that may lead to theft, bitterness, or um, violence in some cases. And so love does no harm to its neighbor. When you focus on loving people, you inevitably fulfill the law because that was the intent of the law. Now, Paul summarizes this by saying, therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And we want to spend really the rest of our time sort of unpacking what this means. What is is he suggesting when he says that love fulfills the Old Testament law? Now, Paul isn't just sort of making this up, right? He's not creating some sort of new theology. He's actually pointing back to what Jesus said. In Matthew 22, verse 36 through 40, Jesus has this dialogue with an expert in the Old Testament law. And this this expert of the law says to Jesus, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the Old Testament law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost command. He's quoting from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, verse 10. But then he also says, the second is like it, or as some translations put it, or is the same as, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. A quotation from Leviticus 19, verse 18. Jesus says, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now, when he says the second is like it or is the same as, what he's suggesting is that these two things are interlocked. You can't just simply say, I really love God, but I don't really care for people. According to the Bible, these two things come together, if you understand the biblical definition of love. Think about what the Apostle John says in his first letter in chapter uh, 4, verse 20 and 21. He says, If someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? And he has given us this command, those who love God must also love their fellow believers. So in other words, you can't just say, you know, me and God, we're tight. And then you look at their lives and see that that individual doesn't love people or mistreats people. There's a fundamental misunderstanding in their idea of what it means to love God because God specifies that if you love me and you want to adopt my values and what I think is important, then loving people and having compassion is important. So when you think about the Ten Commandments, You could really say that the Ten Commandments unpack these two great commands that Jesus points to in the Old Testament, that they're really sort of an extrapolation of that. And you can actually go further and say that the 613-some commandments in the Old Testament are really an exposition of these two great commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, when you look at the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments focus on loving God and the last six focus on how to love other people. Now, even though most of the commandments are stated negatively, the opposite positive action is also implied. Okay? For example, take the Sixth Commandment. You shall not commit murder. So let's say you go about your life and let's say you have these strong impulses to murder people, right? And you say, I I need to suppress that. That's a bad thought that's running in my head here. I should not kill people when I feel like it. (laughs) Now, that's a good thing. But from God's standpoint, simply avoiding murder isn't the fulfillment of that commandment. It's also to love and forgive those who mistreat you. And I'm not just inferring that from this commandment. If you look at the broader context of Leviticus 19, verse 18, where Jesus says you shall love your neighbor as yourself, he also says you shall not take vengeance or bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. Now the reason why God often states things in the negative is for the sake of brevity. It's a lot easier to state things in the negative than it is to talk about all the positive ways to fulfill a command, Walter Kaiser, an Old Testament scholar, says if the mere omitting of a thing forbidden was all that is commanded, there would be nothing moral in the matter. The commandment would be fulfilled simply by inactivity. You see what he's saying? If, If the opposite positive thing isn't implied, then you could sit on your couch and fulfill all the laws that God has given in the Old Testament. Now, I think it's interesting to sort of maybe broaden the scope of our study here and to sort of look at the place of love in major world religions. And I think this is important because one of the things that really strikes me about Christianity is the way in which it stands out when it comes to love. Let's take monistic religions, for instance. You know, monism describes religious beliefs that suggests that the entire universe, the world, ultimate reality, is based on one substance. And two of the major world religions, Buddhism and Hinduism, are monistic religions. Now, even though Buddhism and Hinduism have some form of the golden rule, you know, that you should treat others as you want to be treated, one of the things that you notice when you study these world religions is that there is really a focus on action, or karma. And that your action in this life, or in a previous life, actually impacts your future rebirth. And so, this balance sheet of action from a previous life determines this cycle of rebirth. And ultimately, the most important thing is concrete ethical action when it comes to experiencing release from this cycle of endless rebirth and death. In Buddhism, one of the things that's a little bit unique about it is that there is this experience of enlightenment that takes place either through mental discipline or meditation practices. So there's a slight difference there, but either way, the concepts are very similar. Think about the Abrahamic religions. Think about Islam, for example. Although Islam, when when you look at Islam, it's about submission to Allah. And when you look at a Muslim's life, a Muslim lives primarily by the five pillars of Islam. And one of the pillars of Islam is actually almsgiving. So there's an element there where love is really important in giving charity to those who are mistreated or poor. But really, when you look at Islam as a whole... It's largely based on a believer's faithfulness to prayer, to memorization and recitation of the Quran, and also to ritual purification. That's really what sort of encompasses Islam and its beliefs. The same thing when it comes to Judaism. When you think about Judaism, all of life is sort of centered upon living these 613 laws out in everyday life and doing that rigorously. So when you look at these, I think the common thread that sort of runs through all of these world religions is this thought that we need to work in order to gain salvation or we need to work in order to experience release. And yet, one of the things that we see is that Christianity stands out in stark contrast to all of this. That, you know, Christianity focuses on outward action and ethical behavior, but it flows out of the love that God has given to us. Look at passages like 1 Corinthians 13. In verse 1-3, through Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. These tongues were sort of an ecstatic experience that people would have where they would speak in these angelic languages. And in the Corinthian church, people actually believed that this was a way to demonstrate your level of spirituality. It was a sign of spiritual maturity. Yet what does Paul say? He says even if i speak in tongues even if i have these ecstatic experiences if it doesn't produce love it's it's worthless it's it doesn't matter he says if i have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge and if i have all faith and can move mountains but do not have love i am nothing again one of the things that you see among world religions is this focus on knowledge And wisdom. And Paul isn't disparaging wisdom. He isn't disparaging knowledge. He isn't saying that faith is really unimportant, but that if it doesn't equate to love, then it doesn't matter. He goes on, he says, If I possess, if I give all that I possess to the poor and actually give my body to hardship, or literally give my body to the flames, give my life for my faith. That I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So even religious devotion, if it doesn't really aim at love, he says it gains you nothing. And he finishes up this whole passage by saying, Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but guess what? The greatest of these is love. In another passage, Paul says in 1 Timothy 1 verse 5 that the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So when you look at really the centerpiece of Christianity, it's all about love. And he's gathering all of this from Jesus. He says in John 13 verse 34, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you that you also love one another. Now, if you know anything about what Jesus did for us, the kind of love that he expressed to us, that's a very high bar that he's setting here when he says that you ought to love one another as I have loved you. So love really sits at the center of Christian teaching. And I think loving people is the most important thing we can do not only for God, it's also the, the most important thing we could do for others and ourselves. You know, when you look out into our culture today, people's circle of friends just keep shrinking smaller and smaller. It's disturbing when you see uh, studies that are put out today. Lynn Smith-Lovin from Duke University, her name indicates that she's qualified to speak in this area. <laughs> argues that one in two Americans you meet report that they discuss important matters with either one other person or no one at all. That includes family members. Think about that. You know, most people feel like I have this big thing in my life, this tragedy that's going on, but I don't feel like I can really turn to anyone. Maybe one person, and that's another family member. Even worse, she says, those who report they had no one to talk to about important matters nearly tripled within a couple decades. I mean, we we don't need these statistics to tell us that this is exactly what we're seeing in our culture today. Some of us are actually experiencing that right now. We're sitting here feeling this sense of loneliness, a longing for human interaction, closeness with somebody else. Many experts actually are calling the social isolation in America an epidemic that's not only harming people and their mental health and their emotional health, but also their physical health as well. Vivek Murthy, the former Surgeon General of America, said, loneliness has been estimated to shorten a person's life by 15 years, which is the equivalent impact of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. That's staggering. You know, most people in our culture today... They really are concerned about minimizing their risk, eating healthy, going and exercising. But maybe the most important thing they can do for their own health is relate to other people. Find time for that. I think it would be good for us maybe to start from the beginning and sort of develop a theology of love. How how do we understand... Biblical love. Where, where's the beginning point? And I think it all starts with God. The Bible teaches that God is personal and that He's self-existent. That God the Father and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the Triune God, existed, and were in relationship with one another before the world even began. And this is important because. When you think about statements that Jesus makes, for example, in John 17, where he says to God the Father, you know, I want to share the love that you and I have shared from before even the world began. That God is a personal God and and that his personhood, his ability to relate, isn't contingent upon us. When you think about God, he is a self-existent God. In other words, he doesn't need to look outside of himself to meet any of his needs. And yet, that's one of the real problems with monotheistic religions, right? Is If there's one being in the universe, and that being also happens to be personal, who does that being relate to? Well, according to the Bible, God is triune that he is three persons in one essence. And so God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit actually were in relationship to one another before we were even created. And so therefore, God isn't dependent upon his creatures. He's not dependent upon us to be a relational or personal being. You know, Francis Schaeffer, who I consider to be one of the great Christian thinkers of this century, said that he would have been agnostic if it were not for the doctrine of the Trinity because otherwise there would be no explanation for God's self-existence and personhood. Not only does God express love, he's actually characterized by it. In 1 John 4.8, the apostle says, God is love. That's a profound statement. You know, he's saying that although God will administer justice, even though God demonstrates his wisdom, even though God exercises his authority and his sovereignty, the, the most dominant characteristic about who God is is his love. And that's what Jesus Christ expressed when he came to earth. Also, God created human beings as personal beings. Since we are created in God's image, He created us to be in relationship to one another. I think in our culture today, people have a really hard time finding uh, any sort of seams in in their day or their week for relationships. A lot of times they'll say, it requires too much time and I'm busy. Most people in our culture today are just really focused on their career, their success, gaining as much money as they possibly can. And a lot of times their relationships are are their second fiddle to whatever it is that they're preoccupied with. And yet you look at most people who are driving for this success and achievement in their lives, and yet you see that there's a deep sadness and unhappiness in people in our culture today. And whenever there is downtime, a lot of times you'll see that people will just fill up their time with entertainment. A recent study showed that most adults spend about seven to eight hours locked to their screens a day. And that's recreational screen time. We're not talking about work. And so people are growing increasingly isolated, but they're growing in- increasingly Um, separated from other people and, and human interaction in general. I think the other thing is that people are afraid to lose their independence. And yet losing independence is required in order to gain greater intimacy. You see, the real paradox here is that on the one hand, we want to maintain our freedom to do whatever we want. We we don't want to give anyone, even our significant other, say in our lives and what we should be able to do. And yet one of the real problems with that is in order for us to experience the freedom and fulfillment that comes from a satisfying love relationship, it requires us to give up some of these freedoms and some of our independence. And you look at relationships where, for example... Uh, both individuals refuse to give up their mutual independence. Or maybe, let's say, one party gives up their independence and the other one doesn't, then you'll find that a lot of times the relationship is one-sided, where one person is basically taking from the other. I think uh, the other thing is that our ability to relate has been damaged. The Bible teaches that at a certain point in human history human beings threw off God's authority and leadership in their lives. And that this has had a ripple effect throughout human history so that we are born in a state where we are separated and alienated from God. That instead of having God in His rightful place at the center of our lives, we've placed self at the center. And so that's had some pretty damaging effects on the way that we relate to other people. You know, when we lose our relationship with God, what we lose uh, as a result is His love pouring into our lives. And so we're human beings that need love. And so we try to find that elsewhere, somewhere outside of ourselves. And a lot of times what we do is we find people that we glom onto to meet those needs. Francis Schaeffer Says, when God turns inward to himself, he is a Trinity. But when we turn inward, there is no one to answer. This not only causes psychological problems, but it also destroys my relationship with others. People without God hang too much on their personal relationships and they crush and they break. No love affair between a man and a woman has ever been great enough to hang everything on. It will crumble away under your feet. If I acknowledge that I'm really not God and that since the fall, we are sinful, we are all sinful, then I can have a true human relationship without battering myself to pieces because they are not sufficient in themselves or because they are not perfect. You see what Schaefer's saying? When we have this expectation that people are going to meet all of our relational and love needs, when our expectations take on God-like proportions... Inevitably, people are going to be crushed by our expectations. Some of us know this intuitively. Some of us are experiencing this right now, that the people around us feel like it's a burden to be in a relationship with us because we have such high expectations for them. And, you know, the problem with this, too, is that when we expect so much from people, when we expect them to meet all of our love and relational needs that relationship actually becomes brittle, becomes fragile. Because we'll find ourselves in a position where we can't criticize them constructively because if they got angry at us, it would be devastating. Or if they go through some sort of struggle or difficulty in their lives and they start to become more and more self-centered, it's going to be difficult for us to take that because... Then they are worrying about themselves instead of taking care of our needs. And so, you know, some of us right now, we're, we're in this place where we have placed such great expectations on people that they feel crushed, they feel burdened by that. And, you know, I, I feel sympathetic. You know, some, some of us have undergone a lot in our lives, we're coming from a place where we have a, a huge deficit of love in our lives. But the one thing I want you to know is this. No person or people or friend group can ever fully meet those relational needs that you're looking for. It's just not going to happen. And in your attempt to do that, you're going to alienate all the people around you. According to the Bible, there's only one person who can meet all of those needs for you. Now, when we talk about our ability to uh, recover this capacity to love, it all begins with a relationship with God. As I said, we are in a state where we are separated, we're alienated from God. And so God says that He created us to be in relationship with Him. Now, there's a problem because we've done a lot of things that offend Him, that cause Him as a perfectly moral being to cringe at our presence. And so what God says is that what we need to do before we can come into His presence is that we need to be cleansed of our moral wrongdoing. And that there's nothing that we can do on our own, either through our good works or our avoidance of bad works, to make ourselves right before God. But God, in His love, sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to come and die for us. To provide the forgiveness that gives us free access to God. And so the moment that we receive Christ and His forgiveness, God says that we can actually forge a relationship with Him that never ends. And that begins the process of us being able to love. To love sacrificially without expectation. 1 John 4, verse 7 through 11 says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. You see his logic there? He says the moment that we come into a relationship with God, God actually pours out His love into our hearts, so much so that it actually overflows into the lives of other people around us. And so we no longer have to look at people and try to tractor beam them for their emotional availability and their love and their time. Instead, we can give of ourselves fully to others without expectation. In part because what he's describing here is sort of like an overflow fountain. You know, God f- fills up our lives with love, and that just spills over into the lives of the people around us. So, we want to ask this question. What is love? Which uh, always reminds me of that Hathaway song. You know, it's just always in my head. So catchy. Um, So, what is love? Famous author Robert Frost says, love is the irresistible desire to be irresistibly desired. That's one opinion, right? He's saying, you know... Love is really a self-centered thing. It's, a, it's the desire for others' approval and for them to want you. And so, inevitably, you find yourself wanting them. You know, the evolutionary definition suggests that when you look at love, it's, it's part of, uh, really, the architecture of, of evolutionary theory in that, basically, love causes us to reproduce. Reproduce. But even going beyond that, when you think about human beings, human beings require parental help for much of their lives, and for some human beings, more than others, right? (laughs) But what evolutionary theorists believe is that what what love does is that it extends parental care for, for people, and thus it provides a survival strategy. The biological definition is that love really are just chemical reactions going off in our brains. That these neurochemicals and hormones, like oxytocin, are just basically uh, being released in our brain, and so that's what we're essentially experiencing when we feel love for someone. We're not actually choosing, we're not actually doing something when we choose to love someone, but it's just something that happens to our brains. Um, Leo Laundes, the author of How to Create Chemistry with Anyone, says, you know, instead of saying, I love you, the knowledgeable lover would say, darling, dopamine floods my codeine uh, nucleus every time I look at you. Yeah. That's a romantic way to end the night. Now, how would we define love? I I would say that if we looked in, surveyed biblical texts, we could come up with a working definition for love. First of all, biblical love is a commitment. And, you know, I think about my relationships before I met Christ, and I found myself sort of going through this cycle where I'd make friends with someone, we had common interests, we'd hang out like most days of the week for like an entire year, and then something would happen. We'd get into an argument, or maybe my friend would get a girlfriend, you'd never see him again, or maybe we found different interests, and so we, just, we sort of drifted apart. And so it was sort of predictable. It's almost like somebody slapped a one-year expiration date on all of my friendships. And yet one of the things that was very interesting, by contrast, is that when I came to Christ, I started to form deep, long-lasting friendships, some of these lasting couple decades, And so that was a very unique feature. So it's first of all commitment. Think about what Paul says in Ephesians 1, verse 4 and 5. He says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, God actually predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Talk about a commitment. He's saying, I chose to love you before the foundation of, of the earth. That's a long time to be committed to somebody. And so God is a committed God. He's committed to us, He loves us. Secondly, it's sacrificial. That when you look at what God says is love, that it's characterized by self sacrifice, laying down your life for others. John 15, verse 13 says, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for their friends. So that's one of the things that the Bible teaches is that when when we talk about loving people, we're talking about giving of ourselves in a way that hurts sometimes. Giving of our time. Carving out our resources. Giving of our emotional Resources to people. Sacrificing for others. Also, it's aimed at doing what's good for the people we're trying to love. You know, sometimes what people want and what they need are totally different things. You know, I'm a parent and I face this all the time. What my kids want and what they need are totally different. You know, if, if, if I let them decide, we went camping this last weekend. And we had this rule. You could eat whatever you want, right? And so we brought a bunch of snacks, and they were just slamming sugar. Um, You know, I I was nervous. I thought thought that they were going to regurgitate, like, just, you know, lose it all over the campground. But, um, you know, what we want and what we need are totally different things, and God knows that. And so likewise... We have to give people what, what they need. And it's not based on what we think they need, but it's based on what the Bible says people need. Think about what Romans 5, verse 8 and 10 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Notice what Paul's saying there. God didn't give us what we wanted. In fact, we weren't looking for salvation. We weren't looking for His forgiveness at all. We didn't want it. In fact, there are people today who want nothing to do with what God is offering. And yet God provided what we need, which is forgiveness, salvation. So I think a great working definition for love is a commitment to give of myself in every area for the good of another. Let's draw a few conclusions. I think the first thing is the key to understanding love is understanding God. God is love, then studying the life of Jesus, God incarnate, really gives you a glimpse, a great picture into who God is and what kind of love He's looking for from us. Secondly, I think the key to experiencing love is to experience God. If you're here tonight, what God wants you to know, first and foremost, is that He loves you. And, you know, you might resonate with some of the things that we were talking about, where you feel this sense of emptiness, this longing for love. And maybe you you sense something here, too, that there's a great community of people who care. But that really obscures the point of what God wants to communicate. He wants you to know that He loves you and the starting point is by experiencing His love and receiving the death of Jesus Christ. And finally, before I can love others fully, I must let His love into me. And so as God fills our lives with love, we'll start to notice that that will spill over into our relationships, that it's very natural. You know, it's funny, when you talk to people who just meet Christ, one of the things that they instinctively want to do is to share the love of Jesus Christ with their friends and family. Nobody's telling them to do that. But that's the nature of God's love, is that you can't just hold it and keep it for yourself. It's something that you want to give out to others. Lord, that's one of the real great things about just the Christian worldview is just how different it is in that it is characterized by love. And um, I think intuitively we sense that love really is the most important thing in life. And um, we're grateful that that intuition matches up with what you have to say in the Word. I pray, Lord, that um, we can learn to appreciate your love. And that we can continue to just marvel at and reflect on how much love You expressed uh, to us through Your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray especially for those of us, Lord, who um, may sense in their hearts that You are giving them an invitation to enter into a relationship with You. I pray that they would enter into Your love and experience the freedom that comes through Jesus Christ and what He's done. And we thank you for anybody who did that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.